0: Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Ezra chapter 3, Ezra chapter 3, and I'll be reading the 13 verses of Ezra 3, and then we'll spend some time thinking about it together. Um, Again, I'm thankful to uh, be thinking about Ezra with you in this book that calls us uh, in its very core to the worship of God and what it means to worship Him. So let's begin reading at verse 1. Again, you can follow along as you will behind me on the screen or if you have your Bibles. I'd invite you to turn there. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests. And Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booze, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the uh, Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month… Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come up to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God. "...along with the sons of Hanadad, and the Levites their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving responsively, singing and praising, giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good." For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the Word of God. May He bless it tonight as I proclaim it to you. If you've been here for the last couple of sermons on Ezra, you will know that Ezra is a book about going back. Going back to the land of Israel from captivity in Assyria and Babylon, back to the promised land, back to the land of freedom, back to the true worship of God. Because more than simply going back to the land, the book of Ezra is a book of return to the worship of God. For 70 years in captivity, the people of Israel longed for the day when they could return to Israel, not only to be free, but to worship God in the way that he called. And then God moved the heart of Cyrus, the most powerful man in the world at the time. God moved his heart according to the prophecy that had been made, and the people of Israel were sent back. They could have never expected that this would have happened, except that God had told them it would. And that he had told them he would bring them back from captivity to the land he had promised. And now the Israelites in chapter 3 are back in the promised land, and they renew the worship of God. So that tonight's sermon is really about this renewed worship of God. Or as the title in the bulletin says, reformed worship. Not reformed in the sense of We stand in the Reformation tradition of the history of the church, but reformed in the sense of what we find here in Ezra chapter 3. And there are really four things I want to say to you about this reformed worship, or maybe even revitalized worship is a better way to put it. Many people who are not Christians look at worship, the kind of thing that you're doing here tonight, and they say, What's the point? Why give up a perfectly nice sunny Sunday evening to go and worship God? Why would you do that? And even those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ may wonder the same thing. Why is it so important to worship God? And here's the question I have for you tonight. What belongs What belongs to this revitalized worship that we see here in Ezra chapter 3? If I can just think this through with you, follow with me, as I say, if God is really this great, and the salvation He is offered in Jesus Christ is really our only hope, then the worship of God should be at the very front of our minds as a thing that we live to do. So let me explain these four things to you, and I'll point them out to you as we go through the text. Begin at verse 1. In verse 1 it says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. It means everybody came. And the first thing you will notice about this revitalized worship is that people came together in agreement. They were unified in this as their purpose. For 70 years they had been in captivity, as I noted. You can't imagine that many of them would have had naturally the desire to care for themselves first. But that's not what we read about in this chapter. Instead, they came together later on in this passage. It says when they began to rebuild the temple, they did it because they arose as one man. They had such singularity of purpose in what they were doing when they were worshiping God. It was the thing that unified them. He was not that they were Israelites first or they had come back together and formed good friendships on their return trip to Israel. No, the worship of God was the thing that unified him. The greatness of God is what drew them as one man to worship. I just want to highlight a couple of things that Ezra notes here about the timing and the place of this worship to show you that this unity in worship is one of the qualities that Ezra is highlighting in this revitalized worship. You'll notice a couple of times in this passage it talks about the seventh month. It is not our seventh month. It was the seventh month according to the calendar of the Israelites. It was about the same time as our September. Here we are. And at this time of year, the month was called Tizri. And to the Israelites, is a very special month because if you went back in the Old Testament, you would see some of the most important festivals happen during this month, the seventh month. For example, the Feast of Tabernacles, that remembered God's salvation for His people from Israel, or out of uh, uh, to Israel from Egypt, happened in this month. The Day of Atonement. The day that all of these other sacrifices pointed toward, the day in which God proclaimed the sins of His people were covered, the day when the high priest entered into the holiest place, the only time in the year He did that, it happened during this month. And the Feast of Trumpets, a time of celebration and praise of how the Israelites were sustained during their wanderings in the desert, took place during this month. Everything from the greatest celebration and the way that these celebrations resulted in solemn assemblies and joyful assemblies are highlighted by this seventh month. And then you'll see in verse 8, not only was it seventh month, but the place where they gather is Jerusalem. Now you know Jerusalem if you've read the Bible at all. It was the place where God determined through David to set his name. Jerusalem hardly needs much of an introduction to us. But for the Israelites, you can imagine on this most important month, in the most important place, they all gathered together with one accord as one man to begin to renew the worship of God. The time and the place would have shouted to the Israelites, it's time to worship God. Come back. Let's do this together. And I want to highlight that for you because the author does here about the importance of unity and revitalized worship. Nothing would have ruined their attempt to revitalize worship, to start worship again, if it was dis- disrupted by internal fighting, by fear of the nations around them. This unity, this desire to do this together, would have been impossible. And so this unity is highlighted first. The second thing I want to highlight for you in these first number of verses comes in verses 3 through 7. And it is the zeal or the passion that these people had for worship. That becomes really apparent very early in this passage, as I said, in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us that one of the first things these Israelites did was set up the altar of the Lord for worship. It wasn't to build their own houses. It wasn't to stand up an army. It was to worship God. And verses 5 and 6 in this passage, if you look there, describes the same passion or zeal they had for worship when these people gave generously so that worship could begin again. These were not people who naturally were wealthy. Of course, they brought back with them from the nation where they had been captive the spoils of that nation, But can you imagine what it was like if you had been poor and now you had all these gifts, this money, this spoil, how tempted you would be to use that for yourself. If you've ever been poor and then all of a sudden you have money, you can think to yourself very easily, I have to preserve this for myself later. I have to guard my future. But that's not what these Israelites did. did. They not only gave, they gave generously a whole variety of not only money, but gifts were used. We read about stonemasons and carpenters who employed their gifts. Others took on the responsibility of overseeing the project. The priests and the Levites led in worship as the project began. Everyone gave of their time and their possessions, their energy and their money in order for this worship to begin again. And not even the threat of the nations around them could deter them. Verse 3 says, the Israelites were fearful of those around them, but it did not impede their desire to worship God. And that's the second thing I want to highlight for you from these verses. That not only did they come with one accord, unity in worship, but they also had a great passion for that worship. It was a priority above their own personal comfort and their own wealth. And again, in my mind, and I think I commend to you, this is exactly what belongs to revitalized worship. Thinking of the worship of God above ourselves. Or if I can simply use the words that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices of praise to the Lord. Offer yourself. Have such a passion for worship that you're willing to offer to the Lord even if it costs you. Or, if I would quote another place in the New Testament, the apostle says, Do not lag in diligence, Diligence, be fervent in spirit, and serve the Lord. Now the third thing I want to highlight for you. They were unified. They had a great zeal or passion for worship. And the third thing I would highlight for you is they were obedient in their worship. You can see this in verses 2 through 4, and then again in verses 8 and 9. This obedience to God in worship might seem like a very simple thing. God had spoken to them in the Old Testament about what they were to do, what sacrifices to offer, when to offer them. You'll notice in verses 2, 3, and 4, it says, "...the high priest, the priest, arose and built a temple of the God of Israel." to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. And then it goes on to say they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. That would have been daily burnt offerings. And then it also says they kept the Feast of Tabernacles and they offered the burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance of each day, literally. You see the emphasis that Ezra is making on the obedience of these folks in their practice of worship. The altar was established first, and then all of those days of celebration, the morning and evening sacrifice, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement are celebrated in the way prescribed by the Word of God. Now this introduces to us a very simple reality, and that is if you love someone, you try to love them in the way that most pleases them. I'll just pause for a moment and tell you how long it took me as a husband to figure that out for my wife. She would tell you that it took at least a decade of marriage for me to love her in the way that pleased her rather than in the way that I thought she should be pleased. There's a similar principle in mind here about worship, only it's greatly more important. When we worship God, it's not our own desire that motivates what we do in worship. It's what most pleases our God. It's His worship. It's us coming to Him and offering what He desires. And there can be no revitalized worship, either in the time of Ezra or in the church of Jesus Christ today, without obedient worship. And that is the third thing that Ezra highlights in these first few verses, this first section of the passage that characterizes revitalized worship. They worshiped in unity with zeal or passion, and then they offered themselves in obedience to the Lord. All three necessary components of revitalized worship. Which brings us to the fourth thing, and this is where I want you to pause. And just think to yourself, what in the world is going on in verses 10 through 14? Because a fourth thing that I'm going to describe to you as belonging to revitalized worship may strike you as a bit unusual. And I'm going to describe this fourth thing as a realistic approach to worship. Realistic. This realistic characteristic... A revitalized worship, I would suggest to you, is as important, if not more important, than the other three. Because in this passage, a realistic view of worship, approach to worship, places the Israelites within the time in which they lived. They looked backwards, but they also looked forwards. Place your eyes for just a moment again in verses 10 through 14. Because maybe this struck you as strange when we read it. As the builders were laying the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests were there, of course, coming forward. The trumpets they were playing, the Levites were there, the sons of Asaph. They were singing and praising the Lord according to the directions again. They were being obedient in the way they were offering worship to the Lord. And then they sing this song that is plucked directly from the Old Testament Psalms. You find this in a number of Psalms. And they sang this responsively. If you can do response, not responsibly, responsively. And you can imagine this singing them, this, uh, them singing this back and forth to each other. In the same way that at the end of Deuteronomy, the words of blessing and the words of curses were repeated, were repeated to each other responsively. Here, This responsive singing would have happened with these words, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And they didn't say it once, they said it over. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. What are the Israelites doing? Why are they singing this responsive song? What they were doing is rooting themselves in the history of what God had said. That their worship was not apart from a context. No, their worship was placed within the reality of what God was doing in their world. The God who had led them out of Egypt to the promised land was now bringing them back to this promised land and it was a fulfillment of this great promise. For God is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Sometimes we can come to worship and just think to ourselves, it's my duty, it's my obligation, this is what I'm called to do, I'm just going to do it. It would have been impossible for the Israelites to adopt that attitude because they were called by the nature of this refrain to look back at what God had done. What has God done in your life? How has He blessed you and taken care of you? What is God doing every day as you live in His world? What sort of things is he supplying you with? Health, vocation, family, life. To mention nothing about the spiritual gifts he gives you. That he gives you his word. He listens to you in prayer. He's called you to be his son or daughter. He's promised you everything that belongs to him. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures to the nation of Israel and to the people of the church of Jesus Christ. When I talked earlier about the passion the Israelites had, it was because they understood their worship within the history of God's great redemptive works. And if you understand that, you can't come to worship and say, okay, whatever, it doesn't matter. No, you come to worship filled with a great passion, with an expectation that God is at work, and we come compelled by what He has done to offer the greatness of worship to Him. This is no humdrum, take it or leave it, see if you can make it just in case kind of attitude. This is I run to worship. I can hardly wait to be here because I see that the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward us. This is what it means to be realistic, to place ourselves within the world in which God is at work. But then there's a second part to this as well. Because as I read it, perhaps you imagine this in your mind. Here are the people singing this responsive song to each other. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward the nation of Israel. And at the same time they're singing this, who is it who is thinking of something else? It is those who are older, those who have a memory that stretches further back, and they remember... That the Temple of Solomon, which is a temple which these people will not create. They lack the ability to do it. This Temple of Solomon, which was so impressive, and which was representative of the greatness of the Old Testament worship. A temple, again, that was not going to be replicated in the foundation that they were laying. While this singing and joy was happening, Those who were older mourned. It says, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of their fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. Can you imagine? Now you might think to yourself, (laughs) there you go, somebody ruining worship. Because they simply can't be joyful. But I want to commend to you the attitude of these older folks. Because it wasn't that they were trying to kill the joy of a new beginning. It was because they were also realistic about this revitalized worship. And they were thinking to themselves, what we're going to offer to God in this temple, which will never be as glorious as Solomon's temple, tells us, here's the key, something is not yet complete in the, in the worship that we're offering to God. There's going to be something lacking, something not yet fully there. And while we celebrate the establishment of the foundation, we celebrate in worship what we offer to our God, celebrate it, really do. At the same time, be realistic about what we're offering to God And that is something that is far less than what our hearts desire. Do you hear what I'm saying? Let me just run this past you and see what you think. Do you ever leave a time of worship here at our church? And it's been a wonderful time of worship. Maybe the sermon was really good and the songs were outstanding and you had tremendous fellowship before and after the service. Is there still a part of you that longs for more? Is there a part of you that wishes it was fuller, that it would continue, that it wouldn't stop, that when that song that only has four verses, you think, I wish it had ten to just keep on singing? There's a sermon, maybe, that you listen to, you think, I wish the pastor would go on for another 35 minutes. I heard no amens after that one. (laughs) That's really what I long for. Let me just suggest to you tonight that that longing you have for worship that is not yet here is reflective of the realism of this passage. That as the Israelites mourn something they knew they would not have in full, there's a sense in which our spirits also yearn for something that we do not yet have in full, and that's good. Because the worship that we're offering here to our God, the writer of Hebrews says, is anticipating a day of rest, a fullness of worship that is yet to come. When you have a taste, just a taste, of that really sweet worship that happens here on Sunday, and you think to yourself, I just want more of that. I want a deeper amount of that. I don't want it to stop. I want it to be richer and fuller. What your heart is longing for is something that's good. And also something that is coming. Because the Bible says that now, you remember Paul's words, we see through a glass dimly, but then we will see Him face to face. And your heart that wants so badly to be close to your Savior Jesus Christ, there is coming a day in which you will not be separated by anything. And you will be fully in His presence. You will see Him face to face. Again, the book of Hebrews describes when we gather for worship that we are being lifted up into the heavenlies where those in life eternal are celebrating. We're not going to the mountain that shook with fire and with earthquake, but we're going to the heavenly Jerusalem where those who have gone before are worshiping our God with perfection. Do you ever taste that? To you get a small sample of that in worship? If you do, my friend, and you long for more and richer and fuller, Ezra chapter 3 says, lift up your heart, my friend, because the day is coming in which you will have what your heart desires. As we move on into Ezra chapter 4 and 5 and from places beyond that, you will see the Israelites devote themselves heartily in the face of opposition, struggling against those who would stop them to establish a temple of the Lord, the worship that God was asking for. And friend, I want you to struggle forward too. Noting what this passage says about worship, worship in unity, worship with a passion or a zeal, A worship that's obedient to the Lord, but a worship that also places where we are now in the light of eternity. Because, friends, that worship is coming. And it is my greatest desire that Sunday we will, each one of us, be gathered around that throne and it will not be worship anticipated. It will be worship fulfilled. And there will be nothing that will separate us from worshiping our Savior in glory with absolute joy. Do you anticipate that, my friend? Let's bow in prayer. Father, around your throne tonight are saints that have gone before us, maybe people that we know. It could be a spouse or parents or even a child. Those who have died in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, are now around your throne singing praises to your name. And the beautiful songs that we have sung already tonight and the song we're about to sing, as wonderful as they are and as much joy as they give us, we have to confess to You, Father, still fall short of what, what the saints in eternal life are enjoying tonight. And Father, we pray that You would give us more and a greater taste of that eternal heavenly worship that You would not give us in the irritation with the worship that we're offering now, but there would be, in a sense, a holy dissatisfaction and a longing for the day in which we will not be separated from You by all the things that keep us from seeing You face to face. But, Lord, we long for that day when we will be in Your presence and the worship that we offer to You will be sweet and full and deeply satisfying. Father, we long for that. And we pray that if it is in your will, Jesus Christ would come soon, very soon, that all that we long for would finally be true. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.